I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to Past Imperfect. Please be advised that in this episode, there are discussions of topics that some listeners may find upsetting. Welcome to Past Imperfect, an association with the youth social mobility charity Speakers for Schools. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And we're speaking to extraordinary people who've overcome trauma or adversity to achieve great success. Our guest today is a renowned broadcaster and journalist who has interviewed authors including J.G. Ballard and Salman Rushdie and is now a much-adored Times radio presenter known for her love of the arts, films and literature. She's judged the Booker Prize and is friends with everyone from Mick Jagger to the Cloonies. She's also presented the first series of the Channel 4 programme Sex Box and edited an erotic anthology. She's an agony aunt for the times and the go-to person on the menopause. But it's perhaps her voice that is best known on everything from TV to radio, sexy and reassuring at the same time. She was born in Norway before moving to Ireland with her parents, but her father was an alcoholic who died young and her childhood was chaotic. So at 16, she fled on her own to London, clutching a couple of plastic bags. She once wrote, I haven't got many memories from the age of about eight until when I came to London. I just have flashes. I do remember leaving my father, but I really don't remember much else. Mariella Frostrop, thank you very much for joining us on Past Imperfect. Do you ever think that your two children are now older than you were when you left London? I started thinking that when my eldest, Molly, was about... 14 and I started remembering things that were happening in in my life when she was that age and if there's I mean there's very little satisfaction with parenting because you always feel like you're doing it wrong but but for me there's one thing I've managed to do which is keep them both in school and keep them both (laughs) at home and that feels like such a massive achievement when I know that it's basically just the norm. So can we take you back to your childhood and your parents? How did they meet? Your father was Norwegian and your mother Scottish, wasn't They met at um, Edinburgh. Uh, um, My father was at university there. He studied, I think he started studying civil engineering, but then he changed to English and and that's what he did his degree in. And my mum was a very young student at Edinburgh Art College. She got a scholarship. She was an amazing artist um, who never really did anything with her talent and I think was very is very well not anymore because she's got um, dementia but she was very tortured by it but she was amazing she got a, a scholarship she lived in a tiny village in Scotland called Garleston and um, you know nobody there went to college in Edinburgh and she was sort of snapped up um, and so they met they met in Edinburgh sadly she then well not sadly I mean they got married and she moved to Norway so she left art college to be a wife, it being the 1950s. Mm. And were they polar opposites? You know, I used to think they were polar opposites. And and now I wonder a little bit. I mean, it's very hard to put the pieces back together again because uh, I didn't know them, uh, my father, in adulthood. Um, 
But they were always sort of described to me as polar opposites. And, and I, I suppose in some ways they were. My father was very intellectual and, you know, bookish. And, um, you know, he was very Scandinavian in a way. You know, he, he thought about everything deeply. And, and, you know, he used to sort of watch me as a teenager going out the door and go off socialising again, <laughs> oh, how exhausting, you know. And, 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 and I think given the chance, my mum would have been a much more social creature, but she was also racked by, by insecurity and, and self-doubt, and so I'm not sure that she ever would have, have realised that other side of her personality. So in many ways, I think they were both uh, eccentrics in terms of how they differed from the upbringing that 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 they'd had to what was expected of them and uh, i don't know yes i mean my father as i say was 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 not the most sociable person but actually he was if you put him in a pub he'd carry on talking all night and what do you remember of growing up in norway you were the eldest weren't you of your siblings yeah i was the eldest of of three there was sort of 18 months apart the three of us um and not very much. Uh, I remember... It's it's funny when you go back somewhere because you sort of have sense memory, I think, in a way. And I, if I find myself, and when I find myself in, in Oslo, I sort of have flashes of, of childhood. There's a sculptor park there, and I go there, and I actually feel like I'm a little baby girl oh, again, six or whatever. And, and the city feels strangely familiar. <laughs> and occasionally I get longings for, like, pickled herrings and stuff. <laughs> so I'm sure that's, that's Norwegian. Um, my strongest memory, two, I suppose, one was going to, to kindergarten. Just outside of Norway, there was a train that you used to go on. And they were all very similar, all the Norwegian kids. They were all, most of them, blonde. And I don't know, I just, I remember feeling very apart from the crowd and my mum taking me up there. And I was really, and still am, so rubbish at skiing. I mean, really rubbish. <laughs> and we were thrown out all day long as as kids in kindergarten to, to ski. And then you'd get hot chocolate and then you'd be out again and then more hot chocolate out again. And... Um, I remember a sports day where they'd carved steps into this really steep hill um, and you had to ski down these steps and I completely messed it up, tipped oh. over, somersaulted, incredibly embarrassed. And actually, uh, my husband and I went back there one year when we were in Oslo because we take the kids skiing there, my dreaded holiday of the year. And, uh, and this really steep hill, it was almost flat. <laughs> and it was, I still remember it as the sort of terror moment of my childhood. And the only other very strong memory I have, we lived in a, an apartment in, in Oslo, and, and my father used to travel a lot. He used to go to, to Tanzania, um, particularly. He was quite good friends with Julius Nareri, and he used to write about Africa a lot. Turns out he had a mistress there as well, which my mother found out, which was one of the reasons we moved uh, out away from Norway. But anyway, he came back from Tanzania with this box of tropical fruit. And in Oslo in the 1960s, you just didn't see tropical mm. fruit. You got strawberries in the summer, but that was it. And this box had pineapples and mangoes and just some of the most incredible things we'd ever seen. And I just remember that fruit coming into the flat and it was like a blast of African sunshine, you know, and just made me desperate to travel there and be in this place where these incredible things would grow. And then you went to... Uh, Ireland to a tiny little village. Why did your parents leave? Do you think it was because your father was having an affair? Or? 
Well, the affair was in Tanzania, so I think it was more the fact that um, they just weren't getting on very well, and I think they, you know, and the affair, the affair was indicative of that. Um, and I think they both felt that perhaps he loved being in Edinburgh; he'd loved it. My mum didn't want to go back to Scotland. So I think they both felt that if they moved somewhere similarly Celtic, that they might find happiness again. My mum was desperately unhappy in Norway. She felt that um, she was very much cold-shouldered and, and not embraced by, you know, what she described as uptight Norwegian wives. My mother made that complaint about almost everywhere we lived subsequently, <laughs> right. so I'm not so sure that the Norwegians were to blame. Um, <laughs> But I think they both felt that if we went there, then things might, you know, get better. So my father got a job as the foreign editor of the Irish Times. And we, sorry, we went on a holiday to Kerry. And while we were there, he inquired about jobs and got this job as foreign editor of the Irish Times. So we came back to live there, uh, I think about eight months later, when I was six years old. Um... And, yeah, my brother was four and my sister was two. And we moved, first of all, to Dublin just for a few months, rented somewhere, and then we bought the only house we ever owned. Um, And it was brief. Um, uh, We bought a place called The Stables in Kilmacanig. And Kilmacanig then, I mean, now it's about 15 minutes from Dublin because there's a dual carriageway all the way. But then it was a good hour and 15 minutes drive from Dublin because it was little roads. And it was a village in the middle of nowhere, and it was Ireland in the um, very early, well, end of the 60s, very early 70s. And and we were incredibly exotic um, there. It was unusual for there to be people from anywhere other than Ireland, um, particularly in, in sort of rural locations. So it was quite a, it was quite a, a change. So what, did, what was it like for you? Did it feel quite dislocating? And again, did you feel a bit like an outsider? I don't really remember um, be, feeling dislocated, but I do remember feeling like an outsider. But then I'd felt a bit like an outsider mm. in, in Oslo as well, may, maybe because my mum wasn't Norwegian, or maybe maybe I just you know couldn't ski. I just feel like I, I couldn't <laughs> ski. That was it. It's, it's tortured me all my life. Um, um, but but definitely in Ireland, you know, when when we first got there, my, my parents decided they were atheists, but they decided to send me to uh, a convent um, because they thought that I should experience the culture of the country and and um, you know obviously Catholicism was very much part of that culture at the time. So they sent me to Loretta Convent in Bray, and it was only after about six months I admitted to them that the nuns had put me about four feet to the back of the class away from all the other children um for that whole six months because i wasn't baptized <gasps> that um, oh that they pulled me out of there and moved me so to, you might somehow infect them i might infect mm. them with my heathen ways yes. yeah oh, so goodness. you know if you want to feel apart <laughs> from yeah. from um and different then that was a pretty good way of sort of stamping it uh, on me but that was the first of a lot of schools so yeah, then we just kept moving school. Did you feel that you were disapproved of? And were you? did it make you very protective of your younger siblings? I was definitely very protective uh, of my younger siblings, but I think that was more to do with the sort of emotional weather at home. Though there were instances... I mean, I remember going to a school in Dublin 
um, I can't remember where it was, Ranelagh, I think, and um, and we were bullied really, really badly. Uh, not me, uh, but my brother and, and sister, and so much so that we used to get locked into a classroom at lunchtime so that the, <laughs> the bullies couldn't get us. To protect you? Yeah, to protect oh. us. Uh, that was their way of, of, of dealing with it. And then, you know, we would bolt it home after after school and that was really i think about us being different you know having slightly different accents yeah. you know i mean we were we were weird because we had duvets rather than blankets yes. on the bed Very you know my father would go off to holland on a work trip because he was foreign editor and he'd come back with clogs and we'd all three wear <laughs> clogs you know religiously for a few weeks and you know that would be another reason why we were weird and different but I think in many ways we were we were quite protected because my father's and my mother's sort of small coterie of friends were all you know themselves you know it was when people were discovering tai chi and transcendental yeah. meditation and, and making yogurt and right. making yogurt yeah. my 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 stepmother uh, Alwyn who passed away uh, a couple of years ago now who was an amazing wonderful presence in my life she but she used to my when when things were really bad and when she was about to split up with my father, all I remember was just yogurt curdling <laughs> every cupboard in the house, you know, in the air, and it just it was everywhere. And actually, it was a bit of a motif because my mother used to make this another fermented thing called milkeringa, which was a, a Scandinavian sort of yogurty thing, and there'd be bowls and bowls of that. Oh in. no! Slightly put me off for quite a few years, uh, but yeah. So so I think you know yes. It, we were treated as different. They used to call me Marietta biscuits because there were these biscuits at the time that were very popular called Marietta and it was like Mariella. Um, but th that school in Ranelagh was was the worst time. Mm. I mean, the other really difficult time was being in... We, we went to Connemara when my parents split up. We went to live in Connemara. My mother decided this was a regular thing. She would decide that we were dropping all of that and moving there. And she didn't drive. So wherever we moved, even if it was a mile down the road, it would mean changing school, changing friends, changing, you know, well, not a mile, but you know what I mean. And uh, this was her most extreme move, where she decided that she was going to build where my father had bought the ruins of a cottage on an island that you had to row across to. She was going to build a house there and we were going to live there. And that was going to be and we were going to row to school every morning, then walk the three miles. And while she was building, we lived on a, a cottage on the mainland and went to a local school without the rowing element of the commute. And that local school was a Gaeltacht school, so they only spoke in Irish. Um, and oh so we, uh, we, we were good at English. Uh, and um, even maths was a bit of a struggle. Um, and that was a sort of six-month period, again, where we were at that school, where, where we felt very different. Mm. You know, I mean, we were very different. Uh, but then the whole thing fell apart. The builders ripped her off and back to Dublin we went and lived in a squat with my father, actually, for a bit, with my mother as well. And what was their relationship like? Because he was a really heavy drinker, wasn't he, even from your early childhood? Um, yeah, I don't know about when we were in, in Norway, um, uh, but I, I, I think drinking had been a, a you know a sort of signature of, of his when I was young, 
And there are people, friends of his, you know, still who would say, oh, you know, Joan made that up. You know, Peter wasn't so bad. I'm not so sure because I don't think there was any reason for her to kind of imagine it. And certainly he died at 44 and that's quite young. Um, And she talked about finding sort of bottles behind the bookshelves in his study and... But I never saw him... He wasn't a drunk, you know. He never fell over or slurred or... He just got more and more morose. There'd be a sort of bottle of Suave on the table in the living room or in his study from about 11 in the morning and he would just drink that and then he would go to the pub for a long time. What was their relationship like? Did you start to notice things going wrong? Yeah, I mean, we were only in Ireland for a couple of years before they split up. So we got there when I was six and they split up when I was eight. And I I think, I mean, there was, I, I just remember like Leonard Cohen on a loop. You know, that's <laughs> no way to say goodbye and famous blue raincoat and just this air of impending sadness doom and, and yeah. sadness saturating everything in, in the house. Do you remember the day he actually left? No. Not really, but I remember going after he left, the one room that just didn't have any furniture in it and stayed that way was his study. Um, and I used to just go and sit in there and because and, it used to have a black rocking chair in it and a desk and books everywhere. And I used to just go and sit in there and sort of... Sorry. <laughs> and just imagine him back in there. And it must have been so tough for your mum as well. That, or do you think she was relieved to see the back of him in a funny way? <laughs> I think she was having an affair with my stepfather and my father had been having an affair with his wife. This okay. was the 1970s after all. Mm. And um, I think my father's affair was quite short-lived, um, but my mother's endured, sadly, because um, he then stuck around for most, well, all of my childhood and, and a lot of my siblings. And he was not a nice man at mm. all. And he moved in after my father moved out. Um, he was in the IRA, but he was <laughs> he was a Protestant from Belfast who, who joined the IRA. But I'm not sure the IRA ever really wanted him that badly. And he was a bit of a broken man after because they brought in internment. Around the time my parents split up, they brought in internment in Northern Ireland. And we used to house men who were on the run from the British Army. Um, for a night or two, they'd turn up in the middle of the night. And Did you know who they were? No, but they were really nice always, Eamon and Patrick. And, and they'd always say there were a couple who were returners. They'd, they came back, to, you know, three or four times over the years. Over the, I, There was a couple of years that this went on. Um, and, and that sort of started while my father was there. But they were in the official IRA, which, you know, the narrative that we were brought up with was that the official IRA were the goodies because they didn't really believe in violence <laughs> and the provosts were the baddies. So they were from the official IRA and they sort of disbanded in the end and the provosts became, you know, huge and all-consuming. Um, but my stepfather used to sleep in the end bedroom of the house, which was on the second floor, but my parents had never built stairs down from this glass door at the end of the bedroom. And he built, he he made a sort of rope ladder that he would be able to go down at the rope ladder. And he would sleep every night with his... (laughs) 
be so ridiculous. He'd sleep with his combat gear on and his <laughs> boots, his army boots, by the side of the bed because he was waiting for the special branch to come and arrest him. Did because they come? were doing this big scoop up. And when they never came, I think from that moment onwards, he became a much nastier person. Yeah. I think he became a slightly broken man because his sense of his own self-worth was diminished by the fact that they hadn't considered him worthy of arresting. <laughs> and was he vile to you? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I feel like memory's such a difficult thing because, you know, it's incredibly subjective and particularly when you're a child... But he, he, yeah, he wasn't nice. And and there was a very strange atmosphere between him and my mother. It was a very, I think it was a highly, I think it was a relationship um, that was a lot about, you know, sexual attraction. But also he was quite violent. And so there was a bit of domestic violence thrown in and there was always this thing of either the house was silent because they were in the bedroom or it was incredibly noisy because there was a huge fight going on. It was just not a very functional relationship and I suppose um, the reason I clashed with him was because I was the eldest of, of the three of us and he was, he, was re he was a terrible bully. He was very, very mean to my, to my brother. And then by then, he and my mother had had two sons and my half-brothers, who, who I loved dearly. But, um, yeah, he was not a nice man. And was he violent towards you? He was never violent towards me, um, but he was violent to my mum. Mm. And there was always the threat of violence. Mm. But I, I, think, I, I think I was very belligerent with him. So I'm, I, I'm not sure that he wasn't a little bit scared of me. Mm. I don't know. I mean, I don't know why he wasn't violent to me. He wasn't, he wasn't violent to any of the kids, I don't think. But he was mean and nasty and under my... You know, mm. he took all my brother. My brother is not a sort of macho man. Uh, he's just a really nice guy. And he took all of his, you know, cuddly toys and burnt them, you know. Oh. I mean, he just, he would do just really horrible. nasty, yeah. vindictive, horrible things. He mm. was away a lot. That was the only blessing because he used to work as an engineer in the Middle East. So he would be away a lot. And at one stage, you had so little money left that you had this meal, didn't you, of golden syrup and pasta, oh, which was, was made awful. by your brother. Honestly, I'm scarred <laughs> by that in particular. Well, we were very we were very poor for a lot of the time. I mean, one of the things that always amuses me is when I get sort of lobbed as being, you know, some, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, well-to-do, literati, you know, down from Cambridge kind of person, and you just think. Honestly, like, that's fine. I don't really care what people think about me, but it's so far from mm. the, the reality of, of who I am. It's just kind of baffling how, how I would end up with that particular baggage. But no, we were really poor, A, because my father drank and was a very, much as I adored him and hero-worshipped him and took me a very long time to, you know, come out from the shadow of that adoration, you know, I mean, probably in my 30s before I could have a proper good relationship with a, a man that didn't have some sort of addiction of some sort. But he didn't pay maintenance. He made it really hard for my mum and she had no money and she didn't work. And she had, she was so riddled with, with self-doubt that I think the idea of just taking a normal job just to pay bills was just sort of, I don't know, I never understood it. It's probably why, you know, I've worked 
flat out since I was 16. I just could never understand why she didn't just go and... You know, she'd say she was a painter, and so that was her job, and she couldn't get a job because she was a painter. But paint, she never sold a painting. She never had an exhibition of her paintings. She never did anything with her painting talent. So, yeah, we were... And, and my stepfather would pay money to her, give her money. Um, it, he used it very much. You know, there's a... There's a ad on the tube at the moment that says if someone controls your finances they're controlling you and every yeah. time I look at it I think about him because you know he'd, he'd come back and give her a big wad of cash and then he'd disappear again she'd get no money for ages so when we were in 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 Connemara we were very we ran out of money because all the money went to the builder who ripped off my mum and there we lived on mussels and potatoes both of which you could just gather um I didn't get... I was, I was off mussels for a few years. Potatoes, I've always thought, were delicious, <laughs> um, especially with the big knob of Irish butter. Um, but then the same happened when we were in, in Kilmacan again. There was one day when my brother, uh, uh, Axel, who, as I say, is an incredibly kind and, um, you know, he just tries to make everything okay. And um, we had nothing in the cupboard. And he went, I know it'll be delicious. Spaghetti and golden syrup. Uh, he was he must have been six, seven at the time. And so we made up the spaghetti and golden syrup. It's, it's a very bad combination. Yeah. I think spaghetti with butter is probably better, which spaghetti with butter is fine. I've got mm. Italian kids are raised on it, but spaghetti with golden syrup is just two things that do not go no, together in any horrible. shape or form. Have you ever had it again? I no, are you mad? <laughs> I'm not a masochist. <laughs> listening to Past Imperfect in association with the youth social mobility charity Speakers for Schools with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson and our guest this week, the broadcaster Mariella Frostrup. We'll be back after this. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to Past Imperfect, in association with Speakers for Schools, with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson, and our guest, Mariella Frostrop. to live with your father was there a moment when you thought you just couldn't stay any longer with your stepfather and your mother what was yeah. the trigger i can't remember 
but I, I, I feel like, and this is what I mean about subjective memory, mm. I feel like I came to a point where I thought my presence was making it worse because if my mother wasn't arguing with him, I was. And I really, really... There was... On my 10th or 11th birthday, my birthday present was to be taken out for a drink with him in Bray to this hotel and he ordered me some kind of weird... I don't know if it was a... No, it wasn't. It was a baby charm. Oh. And, And... I remember thinking, this is really messed up. And why am I sitting here pretending to be a sort of adult, adult, Mm. having this baby sham with this man I detest? And why am I stuck Mm. with him on my birthday? You know, Mm. and I I think that was a tipping point. And I got out Mm. and and went to live with my dad. Um, And I had, it was a, you know, it was great. I was in Dublin. I was virtually ignored, which was such a relief after being constantly in the sort of emotional maelstrom of of my mother and my stepfather's relationship. And my stepmother was was really great. She just didn't engage. You know, she was kind and she was there and she made pizzas and yogurt and (laughs) she didn't try and boss me around and she didn't, you know, it was all, it just felt a bit calmer, but actually then it just turned really difficult because... Um, my father just was really, really drinking a lot by then. And so she left him. And then we lost the house that we'd rented for a few years. And it's all a bit of a blur. Uh, I'd started, I had a weekend job. I think I'd changed school a couple of times again. Um, and um, we moved to some house in North Dublin that was just my dad and I. And it was it was just awful it was just piles of dishes and I was trying to go to school and he was just sat I think he was really depressed because he'd lost Alwyn my stepmother and and my brother Finn and my sadly deceased um sister Anna and and you know there was just me and him and me trying to go to school and so one night I packed a bag and snuck out because you you couldn't talk to him he was just it was impossible and um I went back for a couple of weeks to to my mum's and then I decided that I needed to leave school and get a job and and that's what I did. Um, and then I bumped into my dad about four months later in a pub in in Dublin and um, and he said he'd seen me sneak out but he didn't stop me because he knew he couldn't do anything about it. Oh. Did you feel guilty that you'd left him or do you... Terrible. Mm. But that's so unfair at that age. I felt really guilty for a really, really long time. Probably until my late twenties or even thirty. And I think that's why I made, you know, some poor dating choices. Um, because I just kept wanting to be the person who could fix someone mm. rather than desert them. So I would hang in there, uh, come hell or high water. Um yeah, I felt terrible. I mean, I felt terrible that night in the pub. I felt, I just felt desperate. I just felt like everything was crap. But it also, you were expected to be the parent in all the relationships rather than the child. Incredibly yeah, tough. but I think lots of kids find themselves mm. in that situation. Mm. Maybe less so in the more, you know, privileged Western world, but, you know... I think the vast majority of children in this world have a lot of responsibility foisted on them from when they're very young. And, you know, the 
the lucky ones are the ones who who don't mm. you know so i do you know i don't i i'm not a uh, i don't feel guilty for or ashamed for saying that it was a pretty dismal upbringing but at the same time i suppose it it taught me a lot of resilience and made me quite determined and and also made me determined that my kids wouldn't have a an upbringing like that so mm. everyone has it's so boring isn't it you know for years and years and years i thought i must write a memoir i must write a memoir and then i think oh really i don't want to write tis you know or you know one of those weepy memoir things about my you know, terrible suffering. Because actually, you know, I also had a great childhood. You know, I, I, I interviewed Bono for the Sunday Times the other day and had so many memories of being, you know, 15, I think, and working in this recording studio in Dublin and, you know, them starting out as a band. And, you know, it was exciting to be a teenager in Dublin then because we were just, just about mm -hmm. picking up the threads of punk and it felt like it was a teenager's world and I was free, you know, in mm -hmm. a way that, you know, most of my friends weren't. I mean, not for necessarily <laughs> very good reasons. But, you know, all of that was exciting. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I mean, I, I get upset about it still, I suppose, because I don't go back there very much in my head. Mm -hmm. Can you remember, though, the day that you found out that he died were you in the recording studio were you working or i remember um because i was i had this boyfriend from when i was about 14 um but he went to live in holland a bit he was very very lovely ken um but he was older than me he was 18 when i met him and um and he was staying with me in a brief interlude of being back from from holland he was trying to save money to go to architecture college and um we just got back from a weekend in Cork and we were at this flat or room that I was renting from these two very nice lesbian sisters who took me in and were amazing to me. And um, we just got back there and there was a knock on the door and it was my mother and my stepfather to tell me that he'd, he'd died. I mean, it was, it was so shocking. You know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't, he was 44, mm. you know. It just seemed so... Well, at the time, actually, I say it seemed so young. That wasn't the thought that went in my... Because actually, at the time, I thought, well, he's, you know, he's getting on a bit, you know, <laughs> as you do when you're a teenager. But, you know, it was profoundly shocking, I think, as well, because of the last time I'd seen him. And um, Was that in the pub, the yeah. last time? Mm. And that was a very, very difficult few days until he was he was buried. And I kind of kept it together until the night after you know the night of the funeral that after we'd had the funeral and then i just ken was still there and i just cried all night but um i i don't remember after that you know i think i mm. i think i just I, that was when i started thinking i've got to get out of here i've got to get out of <laughs> i've got to get out of dodge <laughs> and started thinking about maybe going to london cuz he he was offered a job at the sunday times actually um a couple of years beforehand and I just so wanted him to take it because I thought it would be, it could be a catalyst for it being different, for change, for him changing, for, you know, him to stop drinking, all of those things. And he didn't take the job. Mm. And, um, and so London, I think, became a sort of beacon for me at that point where I thought, well, he didn't make it there, but 
I'm gonna, mm. <laughs> you know. And when um, your father died, the front of your hair went white, didn't it? I've still got, I mean, that's why my hair is blonde, to be honest. People always think it's because I'm Scandi, but mm. it's not. It, it, I've still got, but it's just because it's dyed blonde, you can't see it, which is why I started dyeing it blonde. Um, like a badge, like a, it's just like two big, thick, sort of inch wide stra pat patches where it's just completely white to the end. Well, and now, it just now it is. Yeah, I, I mean, I overnight. I mean, yes, I mean, I, mm. I, I remember it just being there one day and thinking, what? Because mm. <laughs> um, my hair was sort of mousy, mm. you know. But it became it, your trademark, really, didn't it? What the blonde hair? The blonde hair. Well, you know, the, the world has a thing about blondes, mm. doesn't it? Maybe that'll dissipate as we become more diverse. Mm. But you know, certainly, the the whole there's a whole sort of mythology around the blonde, isn't there? Which I don't think is at all healthy or real. You know, and and most blonde women um, tend to get a little help from the bottle. <laughs> um, so I, I don't, you know, like I say, so I think it's a sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, when we get to a certain age, we all need a little help out of the bottle. But um, I don't, you know, I was always surprised by that. I was always surprised by the voice thing. You know, I mean, I think those are all fake things that other people invent about you, you know, and and they don't get much traction within yourself, you know. And one of your jobs when you were in the recording studio was with Bono. What was it like? Because you do see him still now and you've just interviewed him. He's always very nice uh, to me and always has been. And... Um, especially because at the time I remember thinking they were absolutely rubbish <laughs> and they were never going to do anything. But I thought they were incredibly nice guys and, and we had a lovely time. I mean, I used to make them tea and I used to edit the tape because that was in the old manual days of tape editing. And um, my friend Andrew Bone owned the studio and he was very kind to me and had given me this job. So... It was it was a little refuge place. I worked with lots of people there, Donald Lunny, all kinds of amazing Irish traditional musicians as well. And and yeah, Bono and I we just we we cross paths we cross paths a lot through life, you know, through band aid and live aid and then um you know, we both got involved with um Oxford, all kinds of different charities and things. I always remember having a meeting of everyone who was sort of coming together to try and work out, you know, Richard Curtis and and Bono and and Geldof and and weirdly me and uh, all these people in the room. And Bono kept going, you know, he'd say all these things that needed to happen. And he'd go, and Marielle and her women, <laughs> and Marielle and her women. <laughs> And I'm like, I'm, I don't want it to be an afterthought. If you don't empower women, then you can't change the economy of the world. And then he went on. I'm not saying that I inspired him, but frankly, he went on then to make it a huge focus of, of, of one and the red campaign and everything, quite rightly. You arrived in London with your plastic bags. And where did you go and live? How, what did you do? You were 16. Um, I was with my friend, Mairead Houlihan. Uh, Great who, name. Uh, she's, uh, she, and what a brilliant woman as well. In fact, we saw each other. We, we lost touch completely for about 20 years. And then we saw each other recently at the Boris um, Literary Festival in Ireland. Turns out she lives just down the road. And she walked in and the two of us just... We, I didn't know she was coming. The two of us just burst into tears and stood there crying for about half an hour. Um, Jason, my husband, was with me. He was like, get a grip, you <laughs> do. You know, just... Anyway, she moved over with me and she had a friend who was living in a squat in Shepherd's Bush. 
And um, so he'd said, look, there's, there's not a, a room as such, but you can sleep on a mattress in, in my room. And it was in Stonely Street in Shepherd's Bush. And we turned up there. It must have been summer because it was a bright, sunny morning. I think it was a June morning. And the door was answered by an Irish person. And the house was full of Irish people. And I remember thinking... Really? <laughs> <laughs> I just moved to London. But I was very grateful for the bed. And, and we stayed there for about three months, I think. Um, you know, just while we found our, our feet to a degree. I got a job as a waitress on the King's Road at a place called Blushes. I don't think it exists anymore. Did you ever regret not going to university? You must have seen friends of yours going off, but you'd left school at 15, really, hadn't you? I didn't see any friends of mine go to uni because I'd left by then yeah. and come to London. And... And London at the time was, you know, it was, I mean, it was, it was very exciting. It was, it was the King's Road at its absolute, you know, um, brilliant best, I think. You know, I remember Bob and Paula, Bob Geldof and Paula Yates would come out of the tube at Sloan Square on a sa every Saturday at about 11, 12. And they would do this perambulation up the King's Road and people would follow like a sort of medieval... <laughs> train behind a, or behind a Tudor king or something and queen and they would walk all the way up the King's Road and there was boy and there was sedition and there were all these incredible punk shops and there were punks you know with lime green hair and incredible outfits and oh, I just come from Dublin you know which mm -hmm. was like a provincial town in comparison and it just it felt amazing and it was exciting to be here so uni at that time was not at the front of my mind I was sad when I left school I was really sad because I'd really wanted to go to university but once I'd made that decision I didn't start thinking about it again until I was in my mid-twenties and realized that it felt like a, a big absence and that I was always going to feel insecure about the the lack of that kind of foundation of knowledge that that I would never have but I didn't think about that really until my 20s. You had some amazing clothes though didn't you? Well, I didn't. I had about five pieces of clothing, but they were amazing. <laughs> but in those days, you didn't have loads of clothes because cheap clothes didn't exist. So, you know, I had about three outfits. The green one was pretty oh, good. Oh, it was, it was spectacular. It was a <laughs> because my friends, Regine and Susan Moylet, had a shop in Dublin in the market off St. Stephen's Green called No Romance. And it was a punk, it was the only punk shop where you could get punk clothes. They were the sisters of Johnny Moylet, who was also known as Johnny Fingers, and was in the Boomtown Rats. So it was a very small little group of us. Mm. Um, anyway, from them, uh, I arrived in London with a crushed velvet leotard, head to toe, <laughs> um, long sleeves, you know, right down to my ankle. A kind of green goddess. Basically. It was. It, it was like a, I don't know. It was a bit more frog-like, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you could say green. It was very calmed. And then I had this batwing PVC jacket that just covered my bum, which I would wear over it. And I just thought I was just a fashion Amazing. icon with that outfit on. I went on a hot date with Iggy Pop wearing that outfit, and just thinking. Um, you know, that he must be just completely blown away <laughs> by that. <laughs> I think he probably was, <laughs> perhaps in all the Not wrong in ways. A good way. <laughs> so did you feel you were kind of reinventing yourself? What was the person you were trying to project when you arrived in London? I didn't have time, and I don't think I have all my life, 
to think about that. I, I've never thought about a path or an ambition. I'm afraid of ambition because I always see as that as a way of getting disappointed. So I never fix my hopes on anything at all. And I feel like I'm more opportunistic than I am ambitious. But I did... I just had to survive. I didn't have yeah. any money. You know, I had... Mm. My, after my father died, the reason that I was able to move to London was that there was a, a pension from his um, time at the Irish Times. And I, I think it was £15 a week. It was £15 a week. And that somehow paid my rent. And that was why I was able to move. And so every single thing that I did was just an attempt, really, mm. to make a bit more money, you know, and... I bought my. Uh, I, I I worked in, as a waitress, and then I worked as, in a doctor's reception. A friend of mine's father. That was a disaster because I couldn't spell any of the medical terms and things. And I, I did a few what we used to call Mac jobs, and then I got a job at the record company through another person I'd met, a very sweet music journalist called Ronnie Gurr. And oh, and I'd worked for the Rolling Stones mobile in the interim because I got <laughs> a, a, a friend introduced me to them who I'd worked with in. Dublin in the studio with you two and everything. So uh, that was quite funny doing that job, actually. I used to go to music festivals <laughs> all over the place and, and be the kind of tape-up. You know, I had fake keys on my on my jeans so that I'd look like one of the other roadies. And <laughs> it was just bizarre, bizarre. I did Led Zeppelin at Nebworth and just bizarre. But, um, so, uh, yeah, it, it was just it was just jobs. It's just been jobs all my life, uh, you know, to I bought my first flat when I was 18 um, with a loan from the bank um, that I pretended I needed to get. You could get a loan from the bank then if you want, if you needed a car or dental work. And and I went to lunch with my bank manager and flirted shamelessly with him and got the money. You said you needed dental deposit. work. Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember if it was dental work or a car. No, it was dental work, which was really stupid of me, in fact, because the, there was, the one thing there wasn't that much wrong with was my teeth. <laughs> but he, he, he went for it and that was fine. Um, yeah, so it's always been that and the fear of, of ending up without... And you went to loads of parties. and Did you take I, I loads of I didn't really go not? to loads of parties. I know, everyone always says that I was, you know, party girl. I was, if you ask any of the people who worked with me at the time, you know, UB40, uh, you know, they sent me a card for my birthday once saying, would you like to have our baby? Because they were famously, they had children all over the place and they were, and, 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 and that was emblematic. I mean, Patsy Kensett, if you talked to her, she would say, I, I was the most serious... So were you in bed by 10 o'clock? Well, I would have to go to work the next yeah. morning, you know. So, and the truth about a party is no one remembers if you were there or, you know, past a certain point, everyone's drunk, no one remembers. So if you just slide out, people think, oh, did you see that at 3 a.m.? And you're like, oh, yeah, <laughs> wild, <laughs> you know, but nobody remembers. No, I, you know, yes, I've been to parties. Yes, <laughs> I met, you know, famous people when I was very young and it didn't seem that big a deal because that's, you know, it was the music business and it was all a bit grungy. But but I... I, I no, I was never... A, 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 I've always been the eldest of five. Got to make a living. Got to make a living. And do you think it's partly that you don't want to lose control because you saw what happened to your father? You... Yeah, maybe. Mm. I mean, I definitely don't want to lose control. And yes, I did take drugs in answer mm. to your question, Alice, but never in a sort of messy way because I just... It's the control thing. You know, I tried most things, some things by mistake. Um, and, you know, 
I wouldn't. And you got I was married, never a big drug taker. I got married when I was 18. That's when we bought the flat in Camden Road, Richard Jobson and I, um, who's great. And he's my friend still 450 years later. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, we, were, we were incredibly young and we fell together out of, you know, I think we both needed backup. And... And it was, you know, it was never going to work. And it was sad, very sad at the time and difficult. But, you know, I still, I think he's great. And hopefully he thinks the same. He just sent the occasion. He's turned into a bit of an eco-warrior now. And he sends the, he sent a very snide thing when he saw me on Instagram it, driving the, a McLaren across California with my son. And he was like, this is wrong in so many ways. <laughs> <laughs> so he still likes to judge. But, um... It was very sweet and romantic in another way, you know. I mean, we didn't... It, we were, I was married from 18 to 21. And then when you split up, it must have been... almost echoed your father's death, didn't it? Did it feel like another loss in that same way? Did it bring it all back? Yeah, it was pretty devastating. Mm. I actually got a bad back. I mean, I was 21, and I, I got a bad back that meant I couldn't get out of bed for a month. My, my next-door neighbour in the flat, Francesca, looked after me. She used to bring me food. Uh, so... You know, although the physical impact, yeah, yeah, the physical impact was profound mm. and and very vis visible, and mentally, yeah, no, I was absolutely, I was devastated. But you know, he wasn't the first person that I clung on to way beyond the bounds of good sense, and I, I think it was very much to do with every single time feeling. You know, it was impossible. I needed so much. Mm. I think it was impossible, really, to to fill the the space that, mm -hmm. that I was looking to have failed. So I think it was very difficult. I mean, and I also chose very badly. You know, I chose... You know, Richard came from a, a difficult, you know, very working-class mining background in, in Scotland and, you know, had lots of things that he needed to work out. And my next boyfriend, who I got engaged to, drank and took a lot of drugs and, you know, I tried to save him and you know this went on mm. for a long time way way past you know somebody else would have learned a lot quicker but they did all feel profoundly affecting in a way that really as I say someone else might have just dusted themselves mm. off and, and and got on with it but mm. I was very you know my 20s I would never go back to being in my 20s again it was it was very difficult I didn't enjoy it. I mean, I was doing great things and I had fun on the outside, but inside I was, you know, it was, I was a catastrophic mess. Mm. Oh, what books some kind of escape, do you think? Books were my escape from very young. You know, I started reading quite precociously. In fact, I got moved up um, a couple of classes when I was at one of my... Gaelic primary schools, schools. <laughs> not at the, yeah, at the Gaelic school, definitely. But yeah, I got moved up a class because my read, but even though I was rubbish at all the other subjects, but my reading was, was was good. And yeah, you know, from Narnia and the Moon of Gumrath to you know, I just it was such a relief that there was somewhere to go to. And I used to read through everything from when my parents split up to you know, through everything, really. I had a period where I didn't read so much in my probably early 20s, um, but then I, I kind of rediscovered it with a vengeance in my mid-20s, and that was 
that was it. And it's always been. I don't read in a in a in an intellectual way at all. I read, you know, I, I, there has to be a narrative, or or it has to make me feel something, conjure something. I, I don't read, yeah, in a, in a. I just read because it's addictive. Mm. I think that's the best way I can explain it. And you said when you married your husband, Jason, that it, he wasn't your type. It was pretty fascinating. Was that because he was the first one who wasn't kind of trying to replace your dad in some way? But he was, he seemed functional. I mean, <laughs> you know, now I look back and I think, well, not that functional, actually. Um, I met Jason, um, I was doing a charity walk in the Himalayas um, with my friend Penny Smith. Uh, for the Children's Society and at the very last minute the photographer was coming along because we were sort of leading the walk and writing about it for Marie Claire I think it was and the photographer was coming coming along who was a uh, female Jane I uh, said do you mind if I bring my ex-boyfriend she said he's super cool he's just sued the real IRA and he's a human rights lawyer and you know, Penny and I uh, had uh, were both frothing at the mouth <laughs> and thinking oh my god bring him on of course you can bring him and then we met him and both of us went, mm, not really friends, <laughs> no. And Jason and I, however, spent this whole week having this incredibly sort of um, fractious sibling relationship. I would shout at him every day, stop, you know, stop chatting. It would be three o'clock in the morning and he'd be drinking wine with some blokes that he'd met on the trek and frying bacon and, and everyone else would be trying to sleep because we had a kind of 5am rise and I'd be like, guys, you know. and and But we were with each other the whole time, even though we were, you know, fighting all the time. And then when I got back, my my boyfriend at the time, who was very handsome, very tortured, um, <laughs> Uh, picked me up from the airport and split up with me on the way back because his ex-wife was pregnant. I couldn't understand oh. why that was a reason to split up with me, but, you know, he was very committed to that idea. So I, then I was devastated yet again um, and I went into sort of mourning and my friend Gina was reading through my emails when I was, oh, I can't, I can't even answer work things, I can't do anything. And she said, who's this Jason that keeps emailing me? <laughs> And I said, oh, he's just this idiot I met um, in Nepal. And uh, he, he wants to go for a drink to look at photos. He said, do I look like someone who wants to go for a drink and look at photos? I'm, I'm broken hearted and, you know, in mourning. And she said, you're going for a drink with him. I really like the sound of these emails. So she made me go and meet him. And it was so strange because he really wasn't my type. He's sort of fair-skinned, very, you know, he looks Polish and he is a quarter Polish and, and a lot Irish. And uh, uh, he was standing in the Groucho Club, uh, but I didn't know it was him. And he had this corduroy jacket on. My dad used to wear a corduroy uh -oh. suit. I'm sorry. Morning <laughs> <laughs> signs. And, um, and I thought, oh, who's that man in the corduroy jacket? And they turned around and I was like, oh, my God, it's Jason. And, and we just had a really fantastic first date. And that was sort of it. I, went, I, I remember a friend of mine was, had a drink with us later that night after our dinner. And he went... He said to me, he'd known me for a long time, and, and he went, this is it. This is the one. This is the one. And I was like, don't be ridiculous. Of course it's not. And then Jason phoned me the next morning, and my best friend, Natalie, said, I don't believe it. At last, a proper man who calls the next morning. <laughs> yeah. and, and that was sort of it. Yeah, we just and and he wanted to have kids, and he's seven years younger than me, and he wanted to settle down, and he wanted to have kids. He'd been married before and had an awful um, um, experience where where she left him on his wedding night, 
Um, mm. So, uh, yeah, with left him for his best friend. So he, I think he was very burnt by that and he'd had a few years of re no. recuperation. And, and so he was just like, yeah, let's go for it, let's do it. And I just never met anyone like that. And I suddenly realised that it was quite easy to start a family. I mean, not because mm. it took ages to get pregnant and things, but if you had someone who wanted the same things, it was, it was like a sort of Damascene revelation <laughs> to dysfunctional me. Does it surprise you that you've had such a successful marriage? Yeah, I mean, it's not easy. I don't think, you know, being married is easy and, you know, it's, it, you know, every day is a new challenge. <laughs> um, but, but he's a decent, good person. And I suppose if I hadn't learnt by then, I was, he asked me to marry him literally at midnight on the eve of my 40th birthday. So I think for him it was a no-brainer because he knew I'd say yes because, you know, you get a woman when she's down and, <laughs> and worried and i think because of his previous experience he was he was he wanted to be sure and you just had your uh, 60th birthday so that's 20 years ah, 20 years, 20 years. um but you know i think you decide these things you know i was not going to we, you know we we were not going to split up we wanted our kids to have have a solid base and also i really like him he's you know one of the most principled best people I've I've ever met and even when he's driving me you know crazy I think he's just good and good is great you know if you can find good then that's that's a happy day and you've written a lot about the menopause do you think actually getting older is better do you prefer it <laughs> um, I don't think it's better I think if you could marry the the wisdom and confidence that you get with maturity to you know the body of your 20 year old the body of the, the body of your 20 year old self that would be a pretty spectacular combination and in a way i wish that we'd found the way to inspire girls to be more confident about themselves because so much of what i talk about you know the wisdom and 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 confidence of maturity is really just something that we should be imbued with from from much much earlier on mm. and so actually that is not an impossible dream it's just finding a way for girls to feel that they have you know they have purpose and traction and it's not based on really ephemeral things that make you feel really insecure and and so i think you could combine those two things and if i could have combined those two things i'd probably be i don't know what i'd have been because you know i definitely wanted a lot and and i've worked really hard but a lot of it has been you know having to against the odds mm. of of not being seen to have got a university degree of mm. of always being slightly maverick and a bit I've always been the odd one out you know I just am you know I don't fit into any particular box and I I do think that we're we're quite um obsessed in in this world with with giving people a narrative and that's their narrative and and mine is all over the place ironically for mm -hmm. a book lover mm -hmm. <laughs> so know. looking back to yourself at 16 when your father died what do you wish you'd known then that you know now i wish i'd not taken everything so seriously because i spent so many years worrying and fretting and being anxious and insecure and if i'd had just a little bit more confidence and knowledge foresight perhaps about how things 
would turn out, then I could have saved a lot of time, you know, just just worrying, scared time. And I, I wish every teenager knew that life is incredibly long. And so hurdles along the way are just hurdles along the way. You know, they're not something to, to see as a you know, huge Berlin wall. They're, they're something to just find a way around it and just carry on. So I, I think I think the just fear and insecurity, they were they were they just made life difficult, you know, for a long time. And do you think about your father still every day? Do you feel that he'd be proud of you? Because you're in the same profession and you have been incredibly <laughs> successful. I don't think about him every day anymore. I did until I was about, you know, late thirties. I used to think about him every day and I used to measure everyone against what he might think about them. I mean, boyfriends in particular. Um, but I do, th you know, every time I go into a church, I just went to Venice with my, my daughter for the weekend and, you know, I always light a candle if I go into a church. And, you know, I've got a little book that's uh, 10,000 words. It's from Oxford University Press. It's a little blue book that was his. And I still keep that, even though, let's face it, you can Google any word you want. <laughs> um, and I do, I think that there's a lot of um, him in me. Um, but I'm lucky because I, I got a better combination because there's my mum's, you know, feistiness there as well, which I think in many ways has been my, my superpower, just refusing to be pushed down. Mariella, thank you very much for talking to us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Wish we could just sit here all day. Because <laughs> it's my turn now to ask you two some <laughs> questions. You've been listening to Past Imperfect, in association with the youth social mobility charity Speakers for Schools with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and our guest this week, the broadcaster Mariella Frostrop. The producer was Lucy Ditchmont. If you've enjoyed this episode of Past Imperfect, please do go to the Times Radio app where you can download our interviews with guests including Maggie O'Farrell, Rose Tremaine and Pauline Black. You can also buy a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young. Thank you for listening to Past Imperfect. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website, where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.